Hello and a big welcome to all of you who are listening and looking at this podcast. Today I have a very special guest. It's Marilyn Coffey. Uh, a big welcome to you. Thank you. So nice to see you and you have something very interesting to share. I know that. So uh, please tell us a little about yourself and you have some slides as well you wanted to show us. Yes. Um, again, my name is Marilyn. I live in the United States. Um, I'm about 30 years old and I have been speaking about this particular topic for a little over three and a half years, though um, the issue of those who are women who suffer with endometriosis is in a lot of ways a lifelong condition. Um, I talk about in my presentation when my diagnosis uh, came about, it was close to around 2016. And so as I began to understand better my um, condition with the diagnosis and the learning curves that I had with that, I realized there was a little bit of a lack of education with uh, not only doctors, but also people. And then through that discovering of how endometriosis was not only affecting my day-to-day -day life, I discovered that when working with horses, I'm myself an equestrian, um, and as I was riding, some of my endometriosis symptoms actually started to get worse. So I connected with a physical therapist, and together between my doctor, who is um, an endometriosis specialist, my um, physical therapist, who was not an equestrian but appreciated the sport, and then my brain, and plus my instructor, who is a biomechanist, we kind of all, all of us put our heads together and tried to figure out what were some ways of being able to approach this conundrum of uh, how endometriosis does affect us as equestrians in that when we're riding so often we're using not only pelvic muscles but core muscles and endometriosis can affect those areas. So um, my hope in all of this is that I can at least spread some awareness and if nothing else with awareness then maybe even the opportunity for some education. Uh, as on the equestrian side of things, I am a CHA certified instructor as a certifier. So I have certified other instructors to teach. Uh, I am a USDF bronze medalist. I also have my PATH certification, which means that I can teach those with disabilities to ride horses. And um, overall, that's kind of me in a nutshell in this presentation. Hopefully that answers your questions. Yes, <laughs> it did really. Thank you for that. And and yeah. you have some slides to show? I do. So, All right. Yeah. Let's get that started. We'll click to share your screen. Pop it there. And, and maybe when you are showing them, you could also just uh, talk a little bit of what we are seeing because mm -hmm. this is also a podcast uh, on... Uh, only audio so uh, so people know what what you are talking about okay yeah I'll do my best to describe it in that way yeah, that's good all right so the name of my topic is one in ten women are suffering silently and we'll explain um, why it's specifically one in ten and um, first off before we get started uh, if they, if there's people who either see this link after the fact and they have questions, I will have my contact info at the end. And there's going to be a couple of times that in this presentation, there's QR codes. For those listening auditorily, they won't be able to utilize those, but they can absolutely contact me at the end and I will send them links. Probably email would be the best way. 
um, especially in the aspect of if uh, being me in the United States and you're over there in Hungary, um, text message is not everybody has uh, worldwide service that way. So mm-hmm. email might be the most effective way and my email will be listed um, at the end. So for those that aren't able to see this presentation visually, they'll be able to give uh, or use my email address and I will send them links. And there's even an option where I have this entire presentation sort of summarized onto a blog post. And um, on that blog post, it'll have some of the same slides so that you can look at it at a website point of view. Um, Once you have this as a link, I encourage anyone who feels that maybe it didn't resonate so much with them, but they know of somebody that it might, please share it. Um, And then if you don't necessarily have any questions, but you want to give me feedback on how this presentation in your mind might have gone either well or what you would add to it, I'd appreciate that. I almost end up adding something every time I do this presentation mm-hmm. because somebody will ask a question and it's consistent enough. And so I go ahead and put it in there so that people have that information. So I appreciate any and all feedback. We'll go ahead and do a couple of disclaimers. Um, first off, I am not a doctor. <laughs> when I listed my credentials, you'll notice that I did not list one of those. So I am not a medical professional or a doctor. So I'm not here to treat or diagnose anyone both now or in the future. Um, there are some things that I'm going to be discussing in this presentation, such as naming specific parts of women's either reproductive organs or body parts. And um, these issues, some people will consider being a little bit on the descriptive end, but it's not my wish to offend anyone. It's just when we're talking about women's reproductive, those pelvic floor and mm-hmm. uh, uh, sacral cavity and that sort of thing is, is going to end up coming up. So anyway, um, the in this webinar, uh, if there everything that I have as the presentation, I can either prove or doctors have given me that information or, or Um, my own personal experience. So if when you're viewing this and you uh, think differently, uh, I will, I will hear the feedback, but at the same time, most of the information I'm delivering, I can either prove or uh, validate. If you're a doctor and you wish to point out one of my errors, I would absolutely include that. Um, But most of this information is, is personal experience. Um, I don't wish to offend anyone when it comes to the information that I have. I am, I'm giving this presentation strictly from my point of view, from what I've experienced and wanting to share what I have learned. It's not necessarily applicable for everybody, but it's my wish to just be able to, uh, especially if you know someone who's suffering with endometriosis or maybe even you yourself are suffering, uh, the idea that you're not alone, the idea that there are people out there who are kind of putting their heads together trying to figure this out. So um, those are the disclaimers. Uh, let's see. In this presentation, some of the things that we're going to cover is how common is endometriosis, um, where you can find answers or, or what does the road look like for the diagnosis. Uh, is endometriosis best treated by, you know, having a hysterectomy or what surgeries or can you treat it herbally and that sort of thing. And we'll be discussing some of that. Uh, what are some of the statistics with endometriosis? How can endometriosis affect us as horseback riders? That's going to be a, a kind of a larger topic of the presentation. And um, what is the recovery time if you do seek treatment, uh, such as if you have a surgery, how long until you can ride again and that sort of thing. Sorry, I have a cat and that cat's tail just got <laughs> trying to get the cat to go down. I have a black kitty cat and she's at the moment, I'm alone in the house and she's like, oh, I'm just going to. <laughs> Come say hi and stick my tail in. It's typical. <laughs> <laughs> Walking on paperwork since the 15th yeah. century. Okay. Um, and then rumors about 
um, endometriosis, I have heard a lot, and I've even heard some rumors spread by doctors. And unfortunately, um, lack of education can cause some um, good or bad rumors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what resources you can do for support and connection, and being able to uh, steer yourself or someone you know in the right direction towards getting good information. So who are the one in 10? Uh, endometriosis affects approximately 2 million women worldwide, or you could also word that as one in 10 women. Unfortunately, that's just the ones that get diagnosed. So that number could actually be higher. Um, but at this point with the current research standings, uh, endometriosis is uh, diagnosed in one in 10 women who actually pursue surgery. We'll talk a little bit about it later in the presentation, but um, the most definitive way of getting a diagnosis is by having surgery. So not everybody can afford a surgery, not everybody has access to a surgery, and those women who end up suffering, in a sense, don't even get listed on that numbering. So it's likely actually higher, but statistically provable, it's one in 10. Um, Unfortunately, many women get a misdiagnosis for years prior to actually getting an official diagnosis of endometriosis. Um, It is a very painful condition. It affects women around the world. And um, either you or someone you know probably has it or someone you know knows someone who has it. The likelihood of of having, you know, 50 women in a room and nobody know what it means is is unfortunately kind of common. But at the same time, somebody is suffering likely with this condition or a very similar one. Um, And why specifically it affects us as equestrians is because it does involve pelvic pain as long as well as whole body pain. And we'll get a little bit more into that. So when it comes to getting answers with um, trying to find out if you have endometriosis or if you know somebody who's struggling for a diagnosis, uh, it takes an average of 10 years, which is crazy, Uh, especially when you consider, you know, most women uh, or girls would start menstruation around like 10 or 12 And so um, unless they like started the process in the first two to three years, which most people don't, um, it's an average you're in your 30s or 40s before you end up with a diagnosis. There are some now it's getting better with technology and with research. It's getting better about um, being able to diagnose sooner, but uh, it does take about an average of 10 years. Unfortunately, most doctors will throw around blanket diagnoses such as, oh, well, you just have, based upon the symptoms you've listed, you just have UTI or IBS or PMS. And I'm not going to say that the condition doesn't resemble some of those symptoms because it does. Um, And there is the possibility that it's not endo and it is something like leaky gut. But unfortunately, some doctors will hear your story. And if they're not informed or educated about what endo is, they will just kind of put a bandaid on it and not treat or investigate further if it is connected to possibly endometriosis. Uh, sadly, there is outdated and unscientifically proven treatment plans for endometriosis. One of the most popular ones is just get pregnant. And um, unfortunately, I know of at least three different women who I've spoken to who believed that they have endo. Their doctor advised them to get pregnant. They went and got pregnant. The, almost like a one night stand situation and they went and got pregnant and now they have the responsibility of a kid and their endometriosis did not go away and they were devastated. Wow. Now they love their kid. They love their kid and mm-hmm. they, you know, they're, they're wonderful mothers, but they kind of felt a little um, mishandled in a way by their doctors or by their medical professionals that were advising them. Uh, that is a um, wife's tale. I will get into a, a little bit later. I guess I can interject now when it comes to the percentages of getting pregnant and that actually working, 
if um, somebody who has endometriosis has a laparoscopy surgery and they remove miraculously 100% of the lesions, which is near impossible, but if they did that, the likelihood that you could basically reset at the cellular level, because your body does reset at the cellular level when you become pregnant, um, your, your body can, in a lot of sense, whether you even carry the term, changes as the as a body it changes at the cellular level uh permanently and when it rewrites that code if you will it doesn't go back to its old pre-pregnancy code and um the theory is when that code rewrites that the endo would stop growing so unless they'd had that laparoscopy surgery prior to pregnancy they had gotten 100 of the lesions which is extremely rare and they had gotten pregnant prior to bleeding or menstruating after the surgery which there's time for recovery for surgery before you can even start the process of trying to make a baby. Um, the, the statistics is 0.001%. So I'm, I'm really not convinced that that's a statistic that I would be willing to gamble with. And most people would not be willing to gamble with. Um, I personally do have a kid. I'll get into that later. I, I absolutely love my daughter. Um, I didn't get pregnant though with the idea thinking it was going to cure my endo. But um, I just discourage people from, and kind of shut that um, idea down that that's not as statistically accurate as people might believe it to be. Um, people will say, get a hysterectomy. And in that regard, hysterectomy does not um, solve or cure endometriosis, unfortunately, because lesions can grow, endometriosis lesions can grow outside the uterus. Therefore, uh, if, they, if you remove the reproductive organs, if lesions are left behind, endo can continue to grow. Uh, some people will just throw pain meds at it. Oh, so you're hurting. So here's a pain med. Unfortunately, that can lead to drug addiction and a slew of other issues. Um, just change your diet is a really popular suggestion. Uh, again, this is uh, a lesion that is causing irritation and inflammation and even on its own bleeding. Uh, so in that aspect, it's that's not, not a plausible solution. Diet change does not fix the solution or fix the uh, endometriosis. Uh, and unfortunately, due to lack of education, uh, suicide or self-harm for those that are suffering with endometriosis is very common. Uh, my first time joining a endometriosis support group on Facebook, I was averaging reading, uh, it was somewhere around five or six letters every two to three months that people would post on the Facebook because they felt like that was the only group that was listening. And they were suicide letters. It was devastating. It was sad. It was wrong. And it needs to change. It's not, not okay to be reading those kinds of letters because they feel like they were the only people that could listen. And um, sometimes it's the side effects of the other drugs that they're misdiagnosing them with. They don't have, you know, a depression problem. They have an endometriosis problem. So they get put on meds that messes with their system because they don't have that other condition and just escalates and spirals and spirals and spirals. And it just, unfortunately, it's common. That needs to change. That's what I'm hoping with education will change. So my journey started in 2016. Um, I grew up, I thought I had what was classified as normal menstrual pain um, for, I was start around, I wanna say probably close to 2015, prior to my diagnosis, I was having 24 seven chronic flank pain. And I went to doctors regarding my kidneys. I went to doctors regarding IBS. I went to doctors regarding um, basically everything under the sun up at like a, uh, endocrinologists. And, uh, one doctor even suggested I go to a psych doctor because I might've been making up the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was definitely something that, uh, in, in some ways I look back on not only videos and photos of my writing then, 
And when you're suffering from chronic pain, you deal with fatigue, you deal with brain fog, you deal with a um, natural creation of what they call asymmetry. When your body is contracting on one side and loose on the other, you can actually see in my writing, I'm more concaved on that side, not permanently because it's resolved now, but um, then was just my normal. I was just constantly feeling like I had a gunshot wound in my side and powered through because I was told it was normal. And um, they also, a lot of doctors were scratching their heads and they couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, the, the doctor that finally did give me a diagnosis was still not what would be classified as an endometriosis specialist. He was just a general surgeon, OBGYN. Um, we had basically exhausted every other doctor. And so I got suggested to go to an OB. Um, and when I went to that OB, he said, well, you could get pregnant or we could do the surgery. And at the time I was not in a uh, romantic relationship. So I'm like, pregnancy is really not an option. I uh, will just try the surgery. And I'd met my deductible from trying all these other doctors. So why not? Let's just do the surgery. And so I did a laparoscopy surgery and, um, he at that point determined I had endometriosis. What I did not know at the time, and nor did he educate me in this regard, uh, was that at that point it was already stage three. And so um, at that point, I want to say I was like 22, 23, somewhere in there. And um, having not had the information about how what I was experiencing was not normal, there's the chance that I could have had a, a earlier intervention, less of a degree, but because it had already gone on for years. And I wasn't sure what was going on. It had already reached stage three, though that doctor did not tell me that. That doctor just said, you have endo. Here's your two options. You can get pregnant or um, you can go into medical induced menopause. And I said, well, again, non-romantic relationship at the time. Um, I would, I think I'm going to just opt for doing the medical induced menopause. And it was just a weird conversation at 20 to be talking about menopause with my doctor. But that's what we opted for. And so I did medical induced menopause for a little over um, five years, and uh, that'll lead to the next slide. But uh, before I switch slides, I reiterate on this, um, many, many doctors prior to that OB, whether it be whether they were OBGYN doctors or other doctors, told me to accept my symptoms, that they, it was my new normal. Um, sorry about your luck, you're a woman, and buck up and deal with it. And, and it wasn't, my, my pain tolerance was pretty high. Um, is still pretty high. I was willing to accept the pain, except the problem was when I, I ran into problems when getting into the medical induced menopause and um, it started to affect, it's one thing when it affects your day-to-day -day life, but when it started to affect my writing, I really started to question if I uh, should just let this continue um, at the rate that it was because writing I'm, I'm very passionate about what I love to do. And currently it's my source of income. So I really can't have it um, affecting that. Um, but anyway, so uh, as a shout out, if you will, both uh, my family and my now current husband were very supportive. I was friends with my husband uh, or friends with uh, my husband, now husband, I guess this is what I'm trying to say. Then we were not quite to dating or in a relationship at the time, but um, he has observed me, if you will, through this whole journey. He was very supportive and has been throughout all the diagnoses and, and doctors and surgeries and all of that process. And my family was always very supportive. And I, I bring it up because that's huge. And I do realize that there are a lot of women out there whose family, even their own parents or uh, spouses are not supportive to that. And that my heart breaks for them 
uh, I, 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 I realized that that has to be horrible because I had the support and yet it was still hard, mm-hmm. but, um, it, it does help to be able to have a support system and, and whether it's family by blood or family by choice, uh, it's supportive. It's really encouraging when you do have a support system, mm-hmm. uh, to be able to pursue trying to find answers, uh, Again, this is where it talks about the medical induced menopause. I do need to change it from 4.5 to five years. It's now been, it was five years. Uh, sorry about that. It's length of time since I did this presentation last. So it was, it was around four to half uh, to five years. And uh, the, for me, medical induced menopause did help. I do know of plenty of other women who I've connected with along this journey who that did not work for them. The theory behind doing the medical induced menopause for endometriosis is it's supposed to theoretically, again, can't clinically prove this, but theoretically it is supposed to slow the growth of endometriosis lesions, which we'll talk in just a moment about what is endo and what it looks like and and how it affects the body in just a moment. But um, the, the problem is, is that the, that theory is not necessarily definitively sound for everybody. And they're now arguing if it's not actually just masking symptoms and not slowing the growth because there's been a couple of cases, several cases of people doing the medical induced menopause. They feel better. They have another surgery and it grew two to three more stages. And so it did not in their case, slow their growth. Um, In my case, in two years, I went from stage three to stage three again, even during the medical induced menopause. So, um, you know, I can't necessarily definitively say if it does in fact slow it for me, it did help my symptoms, whether the word help or the word mask should be the correct word one could argue, but um, it did help me function as a more normal human being. And I did not menstruate. I went, um, there was a time period where for six months I bled and then that was, I was told that was normal and that, that, that's not normal. <laughs> you shouldn't bleed for six months. I was anemic, very weak. Um, and that was the process of trying to get my body to go into menopause in your twenties, which isn't normal, but anyway, <laughs> it's neither here nor there. Um, some people will suggest doing gut health, uh, management for endometriosis symptoms where I uh, respond to that is gut health is a definitely something that can help you manage the symptoms. It does not cure the endometriosis. It does not uh, slow the growth, increase the growth. It's, I think as human beings and functional human beings, whether male or female, we should look at gut health. Um, I I don't think that's something that we do it for our horses, right? (laughs) We care very much about how the horses and how their gut works. So um, I think for us, there, there is an element, a, a healthy gut will have a healthier person, but you can have a healthy gut and still have endometriosis symptoms. Uh, now, it, it, endometriosis does, uh, in often cases, get worse with an unhealthy gut. So if you have uh, inflammatory responses towards things like sugars or gluten or wheat or, or whatever, those symptoms might aggravate the RD pre-lining conditions such as endometriosis. So um, for me, uh, using Plexus, which I don't know if it's available in your area. I'll be honest. It's, it's something that's here in the U S I think they offer it worldwide. Uh, but anyway, that personally did help me. Uh, but I do recognize there are plenty of other companies out there that offer, um, microbiome support or gut health support. And at that point you have to discuss with your doctor or your medical professional, what is best for you. Um, they can, it can help, but again, it's not a cure. 
uh, public floor therapy, public floor therapy was for sure one of the best options for um, managing pain. Again, it didn't cure it. Um, but what I used was we kind of, I was kind of part of an experimental process where my physical therapist, who uh, I had mentioned earlier, she's not necessarily an equestrian, but she's very knowledgeable when it comes to pelvic floor health, as well as how endometriosis affects the pelvis specifically. And she, uh, they utilize what they call a combo unit. And a combo unit is essentially an ultrasound and a TENS unit in combination. That's why they call it a combo. And the ultrasound um, is used like the wand part of the ultrasound is placed on uh, the woman's abdomen. And the TENS unit is placed with those little pads they put across the body. Um, And the TENS will activate and then the wand ultrasonic waves, if you will, the theory is put um, pulses of vibration through tissue and um, stimulate it, which can increase blood flow, which can then therefore help with healing. And the, the running theory, though this is not, it's not clinically proven yet because it's, it's something that um, I will say is sort of kind of new off the cuff. It's, it's not something that a lot of doctors are doing yet. Um, mine in particular, I was a part, I was myself and like four other women that they were doing it to to see if it would help with symptoms. Uh, they did it on the abdominal area where I had had previous scarring from lesions from both surgeries as well as uh, the endometriosis lesions. And it did help. It did help with my managing my pain. It made my um, abdominal pain better. It did not take it away, um, but it did make it better. And I would encourage you, if you have a physical therapist in mind that you like to work with, ask them if they have the combo unit, ask them if that's something that they feel comfortable doing. It was originally designed and supposed to help women with cesarean uh, deliveries recover quicker. Uh, that was the original purpose of the concept. But since then, I know they've used it for other things. I uh, met a gentleman uh, two or three years ago who tore part of his calf muscle in his leg. And they did the combo unit for that to help with scarring tissue and the, the fascia to sort of resort out where his leg needed to go and uh, or his muscles and tendons to to reshape, if you will, from the trauma of tearing his calf muscle. So it, it's got other uses for it. But for me, that really helped as a form of therapy. Um, so I was told after my first surgery and my second surgery uh, that I would not be able to have children. I uh, was actually able to have my daughter Raylan. And uh, it was sort of a, uh, I, I will give credit to the surgeon who did my second surgery. Uh, he was an endospecialist. He's in Dallas uh, area, t- Dallas, Texas area. And he, uh, when he got in there for this, at this point, this was my second laparoscopy surgery. Again, only two and a half, three years from my first surgery. He confirmed that he could see where the other doctor had been <laughs> with his uh, excision uh, approach to removing the lesions. And he did indicate that um, that doctor did an okay job, but left a lot of behind and that my endo had come back in full swing. And at that point in just two years, had already gone back to stage three. And we'll talk about stages in just a minute. And um, at that point, the uh, he said, look, my appendix was compromised. I'll, I'll show you some pictures of what that might look like. And um, he that was the explanation behind the 24 seven flank pain is my appendix was compromised. Uh, he removed what he could, but he did 
when I came to and I woke up from in recovery, he's like, look, I don't know if you'll ever be able to have kids. It, it looked like somebody had poured battery acid in my abdominal cavity. He said it was solid super glue. Um, at one point, uh, he, he, I was on the table for a little over five hours. Uh, he was trying to scrape away and, and excise all of those lesions. And um, my right rib was adhered to my right abdominals. My right abdominals were adhered to my right pelvis. My right pelvis was adhered to the right side of my cervix. It just looked like one solid sheet of superglue altogether. And uh, it also explains why I was having trouble getting right lead canter. <laughs> I was just blaming myself that I was just a bad rider, but it actually had a lot to do with the fact that I couldn't move my hips very well. It was borderlining on frozen pelvis, but not, I wasn't quite that bad yet. It would have been had I not had the surgery with that doctor. So I've been mentioning and talking about what is, or this endo thing, what, what is endometriosis? Uh, essentially, it is a disorder that uh, tissue similar to the lining of the uterus, which is referred to as endometrium, grows and spreads outside the uterus. To be clear, it is not endometrium. Uh, th therefore, while there was a lot of rumors spread around that uh, endometriosis was just endometrium and that when one would menstruate, that it would like backflow back into the pelvis, um, that has since been debunked, though it's not entirely terrible to say that because I mean that sounds bad too <laughs> but it's it's not unfortunately when I put this question up there I sort of laugh because even doctors don't exactly know what it is uh, specifically they can't say it is this dot 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 instead they're saying it's a disorder where it's similar to endometrium based upon when they take it off of a slide and they're looking under the microscope it looks like that but they actually kind of don't know for sure what it is and where it comes from and how you get it uh there there's a lot of conflicting rumors around why how and why but um there's still not a 100 percent real definitive answer there are some that say that it's genetic there's some that say uh you're just you kind of got the the short end of the stick when it came to uh, uh your dna and how your dna chose to write itself but um endometriosis lesions can spread throughout the body uh typically they do start in the pelvis but they don't just stay there based upon their degree of severity they they start there endometriosis lesions start in the pelvis and then sort of flower out and, gr and um, grow and spread throughout the body and pretty much anywhere where blood can flow meaning your veins in your system where you if you cut yourself you bleed where blood can get in your body, endometriosis can grow. And so if you think about it, they have actually found endometriosis in the brain, in the eyes, in the toes, in the legs, in the knees, in the hands. It's strange. And a lot of people think that endometriosis is just a pelvic issue. Unfortunately, it's not. It starts off there. Um, but if it's allowed to progress, if it's allowed to grow, and depending upon if you're one of the unfortunates where it grows really, really rapidly, it can be... Uh, where it's not supposed to be at all uh, very quickly in your body. Uh, one of the more common um, spreads before it is detected is in the lungs. Uh, there are several women on different endometriosis support groups who will tell you their story. If this is not my story, so I can't give it, where they went into the doctor uh, complaining of chest pain and they went and did a surgery and found out that their lung had completely collapsed because the endometriosis had reached their lungs at that point. It's usually caught by them, but they've done um, like autopsies and cadavers and found endometriosis lesions in the brain. Usually it's been caught prior to that, but anyway. So when it comes to the stages, uh, the stages, there's uh, four stages to endometriosis. 
And uh, stage one, you'll have minimal to few uh, implants throughout the pelvic cavity. Uh, it is darn near impossible to detect with the naked human eye. A very skilled surgeon sometimes can see them. Uh, in a little bit, we'll be talking about there's one particular leading cutting edge doctor that is trying to patent and um, uh, advertise a dye contrast that they'll be able to put into a woman's abdomen that will highlight those areas. But for right now, stage one, it's, it's very hard to see, but can be seen. Um, very few implants and uh, typically within the pelvic cavity. Stage two, you're going to have a little bit deeper lesions. They're definitely going to be a little bit more visible to the naked eye in a surgery case. Uh, they would not be still at this point visible on an ultrasound or a CT scan or a CAT scan or anything like that. Uh, stage three, you're going to have a little bit more deeper implants. You're going to have uh, even some small cysts that can uh, implement to that. And then the adhesions start at this point to leave the pelvic cavity. They can start invading your abdominals. They can start invading your pelvis uh, or rather hips and even femurs. Um, if it's a, it's a, if it's a bad stage three, which I know sounds like that should be stage four, but like that, at the maximum on the cusp of edge of three to into four, you're looking at like it could get into your diaphragm and start touching towards your lungs. And then stage four is where it's very severe uh, large cysts, uh, mini implants, probably well past left your pelvic cavity and invading your lungs and starting to go even higher and down your legs uh, at that point. And there are cases of stage four and it is only in like the gut area and it hasn't gone that bad, but it's like, it either spreads and it's more mild or it's um, localized, if you will. It just depends upon how fast it goes and your, your, every person is different. Um, Unfortunately, when it comes to the stages, the stages do not de de depict pain. So you can be in writhing pain and be in stage one. You can be in writhing pain and be in stage four. You can be in no pain and be in stage four. That's the hard part. Um, the, uh, but you'll be having other issues. So like if it's stage four and you're not experiencing that much pain, um, you're probably though having trouble getting pregnant. If you're trying for that, you might be having uh, menopausal symptoms way too soon. If you're in your twenties and yet you're having hot flashes or you can't stop bleeding or you haven't bled or to that effect. So um, unfortunately pain does not equal to stage. I'm going to go ahead and switch to this slide for those that are able to watch this as a slide, not the auditory crew, but those that can watch this on the slide, this depicts a picture where you can kind of see the four stages where there's just a few little dots for stage one and then a couple of other larger dots for stage two. And then um, if we go ahead and skip over three and jump over to four, we'll see how there's those um, stringy looking bits that are connecting the ovaries to the fallopian tubes and the, and the ovary into the uh, uterine wall. This is just what it would look like as a depiction of in the um, pelvic area, but it does, it does way worse it's like pouring battery acid or super glue into somebody's abdominal cavity. It's not, it, it's not just in this area by this point usually, but you could see how this would wreak havoc in the reproductive area for stage four. So for those that are listening, they can't necessarily see that, but maybe they can look at it later. And again, this slide, unfortunately, won't be easy to describe um, when it comes to those that are uh, listening. But for those that are watching, uh, and can see this, uh, we'll direct to picture number A. I know that it's not a pretty sight. If you have a squeamish step, just look away. <laughs> uh, but picture A is actually a, 
picture of an appendix that is completely adhered and compromised. I, I can't admit that this is, this is not my appendix, but this is how it was described to me. And I was shown pictures that the hospital got to keep and it did look a lot like this. Um, so uh, this is not my appendix, but this is somebody else's appendix with a very similar story to mine and they gave me permission to use it. And um, you can see that that particular appendix, it literally looks like it's wrapped around with lesions. And um, this individual would have been demonstrating very similar symptoms to mine, which were the chronic flank pain. I felt like I was constantly having an appendicitis attack. However, all the blood work would come back normal and all the imaging would come back normal. And, and I was told I was just making it up, but it's very painful for anyone that's actually had either an abdectomy or appendicitis, it's very painful. And you add on the fact that it's worse during menstruation, um, then, you know, it's just, you, you're just in pain all the time. Mm. Um, when you look at B, you can see that there's those darker little implants against the natural healthy tissue. And then um, the area that kind of looks like a spider's web or, or a um, thin membrane, almost like fascia. I mean, it's not, it's not fascia, but it looks like that. Uh, is adhesions that are growing. So I'm not a doctor, but if I was to guess them getting a, a very clear picture like this, this is every inch of at least a stage two, if not stage three looking in appearance, probably stage two um, endometriosis lesion. If it, depending upon the size of it, maybe that could even be a one stage one if they got close enough to it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure how big that particular dot is, but being able to see it that clearly in a laparoscopy surgery, it's at least probably a stage two. And then we have um, image A, where it's demonstrating kind of what those lesions look like. And then um, it's starting to adhere onto vital organs, such as either the liver or the pancreas or, or any of those. So, um, and then image D, you'll see that uh, that is a slice, <laughs> a, a, a biopsy slice of a woman's lung. And uh, that particular case study was where a woman came in and she was complaining of chest pain and uh, they thought she was having a heart attack. And when they determined that she wasn't having a heart attack, they uh, opened her chest cavity up, kind of like an open heart surgery. I mean, they just cracked her chest open and started looking around, seeing what the issue was. And that's endometriosis completely riddling a section of her lung. And uh, that wasn't even the whole lung that they, they removed. I believe half, if I remember correctly on this particular story, they removed half her lung. And that's just a biopsy sliver that they took. And she just looks nasty <laughs> for those of you that have a weak stomach. Hopefully I haven't made you sick at this point, but endometriosis is ugly. It's an ugly looking thing. Um, so some of the common symptoms with endometriosis, uh, again, they're listed there. I won't necessarily go down and list all of them, but uh, the, well, I guess those that are listening auditorily, maybe I should. Chronic pain in the lower back or uh, lungs and legs. Uh, they... Uh, they can invade vital organs, including the brain. We kind of talked about that a little bit already. Lesions that adhere and um, penetrate other painful or other vital organs, and this is painful. Those lesions, they don't belong, and the body knows they don't belong. And so the body sends signals to the brain saying, there's something wrong. We need to fix that. And that often results in pain. Um, irregular or painful menstruation periods, though that is not necessarily the case for everyone. It's, it's pretty common to be detecting that. But the hard part is what is normal? You know, for those of us that suffer with endometriosis, we uh, are normal might be somebody else's hellish of a day. Uh, so it, what is normal, you could argue, but at this point, it's irregular, or maybe those that cycle every 28 days exactly on the dot, that doesn't mean they can't have endo, because I was actually fairly regular prior to the whole six months bleeding nonstop. 
that wasn't normal. But, um, you know, you can be pretty regular and still have endo. But one of the red flags, if you will, is that sometimes you bleed every 28 days, sometimes it's 30, sometimes it's 40, sometimes it's every six. You know, at that point, that's not that's not normal. Um, depression is often uh, a common symptom. And I, I, I hesitated listing that because I don't want necessarily people to say, oh, I can just take my antidepressants and that will solve my endo problem. That's not true. I believe partly why depression is on there is because there's not a lot of solutions. There's not a lot of answers and there's a lot of misdiagnoses going around and it does start to make you feel kind of crazy. So at that point, not that depression and crazy is the same thing, but at, at, one can argue that if we had better research, if we had better means of diagnosis, if we had better treatment, if we had a cure, I'd be willing to bet the depression rate would go down when it comes to those that are suffering with endometriosis. Uh, cysts are not uncommon. In fact, there's a lot of women who have endometriosis who also have what they call PCOS or polycystic ovarian um, syndrome. And I also have that. <laughs> I struck the lottery when it comes to genetics. Um, so I also have PCOS as well as endometriosis. I chose this topic specifically just endometriosis because otherwise it might've turned into a two hour topic and we're not going to get into that because PCOS does have a few other um, differential symptoms, but you, you do create cysts with PCOS. You also can create cysts with endometriosis. So they're usually just more balls of lesions, but you can create cysts as well. Um, Pain uh, during or after intimacy is pretty normal. And a lot of that has to do with those lesions being in the uh, pelvic cavity area around the cervix and compromising muscle spasms or uh, any kind of uh, involvement in that area. I will try to keep this professional, but uh, it, that's pretty normal to uh, have pain during that time. Uh, infertility is a very common symptom. And a lot of that has to do with the body is sending signals to that area that there's things wrong and often the environment is uninhabitable for something like a fertilized egg to be able to latch onto uh, the uh, uterine lining uh, to be able to grow. A lot of times if the uterus is already compromised with this ailment, then um, it's not uncommon to suffer with infertility issues. Uh, one, of, one of the scarier, if not worst statistic, or not statistic, but symptom in this particular case is endometriosis left untreated 90% of cases lead to uterine cancer, which is just nuts. I mean, absolutely nuts. We, we, we need to do better. Uh, we need to be able to treat and diagnose this sooner so that we're not leaving people with cancer-like or cancer symptoms. In uh, some sense, when I'm asked by people, uh, how would you, like, you have two minutes, how would you describe endometriosis? I will sometimes say it's the unsung cancer. It's, it's not cancer, so I can't technically say it's cancer, um, though they still don't know what it is. So, <laughs> but, um, uh, it does lead to cancer. It can lead to cancer if left untreated. And a lot of that is just because the environment becomes so uh, inhospitable that, um, other things such as cancer can start to take effect and take hold, uh, painful bowel movements. So this sounds, I know you you probably don't want to talk about this, but after my surgery, after I had my first bowel movement, I'm like, holy cow, that's normal. So I all this time thought it was just normal to like need to almost feel like to take Tylenol or Advil or whatever pain medication just to be able to go to the bathroom. And I would even like not dread it, but like uh, it was awful. I, I had had adhere, adhesions rather um, where my rectum was and that lower intestine was all squished together. Uh, in my case, after my last surgery, when he released all of that, 
I found out that it's actually not painful to go to the bathroom. I didn't know. I thought it was. I just thought all women, especially during menstruation, I just thought, oh, it's just normal. It's just normal because that's what I was told. And it's not. Um, bloating or swelling, uh, fatigue, brain fog, collapsed lungs if into and gets that far, and weight challenges. The weight challenges often have to do with one of the only treatment options out there, if it's not the surgery, is to do the medical-induced menopause. Well, as a 20-year-old at the time, I could definitely attest that my body went through some weird weight changes, both loss and gain uh, during that five-year window because my body was, it wasn't being in its normal state for an average 25, 24 year old. And my body thought I was in my sixties, <laughs> you know, mm. and my metabolism got all kinds of messed up. Um, the medications often that were given will have side effects towards weight gain. Uh, the inflammation element of endometriosis will give the appearance but not on the scale, but give the appearance of weight gain. Um, and that we have that bloated full feeling. Um, and it, it can be very challenging to deal with that. And it's very, uh, unhelpful when we go to the doctor and we have a change of weight, whether it's down or low, but in most cases, if it's a higher case, um, uh, an increase of weight that they're like, well, you just need to lose weight and then we'll treat your possible endo. There was a case, a friend of mine where, um, she kept working out because she was noticing some swelling in her abdomen and she knew she was not pregnant. Uh, she took, she ran several pregnancy tests to see if it was that, but it wasn't that. And, uh, she kept working out, she kept working out. She was just gaining this weight and she couldn't figure out what was going on. And finally, after begging the doctor to do a surgery, they found about half the size of a football. So like what, like a orange or bigger, uh, cyst on her ovary. It, so the, the, the swelling and the distension that she had in her belly had nothing to do with what she was eating. The poor girl was eating like nuts and salad the entire time and had nothing to do with that. It actually had to do with the fact that she had a cyst in her case uh, and she has PCOS. I don't believe she has endo, but she has PCOS. Yeah. So something to take into consideration. I, I, I had gone through the same. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, it's, it's really kind of frustrating when doctors yeah. will say, just lose weight and then we'll treat you when the yes. problem might solve the other problems. I'm not saying we should just go about unhealthy. <laughs> it's important to take your health into consideration. It's important to listen to your doctors when they are mm. trying to help you uh, in that regard. Uh, but it's really unhelpful when doctors will say, lose weight first, then mm. we'll look at the other things. That That's, that's un not sound advice and find a different doctor if that's what ends up happening to you. Mm. Uh, so how does one get diagnosed with endometriosis? We've covered this a little bit already, but this at least gives you, uh, for those that are watching, you can see an image. Uh, this is referred to as a laparoscopy surgery. This is considered the gold standard. Uh, there are people I am aware of that do receive a diagnosis via an ultrasound or a CT scan. However, it's not really detectable. What's detectable might be abnormalities. So the lesions aren't gonna show up, but on an ultrasound with a skilled eye, you might be able to see, hey, that ovary is stuck to that fallopian tube, which is stuck to the uterus, which is stuck to that, which stuck to this, which is stuck to that. And so at that point they can go, something's wrong. And it might be this, and you can get a diagnosis that way, but that's not as definitive as literally getting eyes on it and, and indicating, hey, this is, this is what the issue is. Um, so I'm not going to denote and say anybody that's gotten a diagnosis via a CT or an ultrasound doesn't have it. I'm not going to go down that road because that they might, they might genuinely have it. The most definitive for sure way to get a diagnosis is to have a lap. And unfortunately to have that lap surgery, laparoscopy surgery, uh, nickname is lap. Um, the, 
there are cases with general OBGYNs doing the laparoscopy surgery. I don't want to say lazily, but just let's say uneducated. Uh, and they don't know what to look for, for the endometriosis and they end up missing it and then close the person up, wake them up and say, Hey, you don't have endo. And that, so unfortunately you can have a laparoscopy surgery and be misdiagnosed by not getting the diagnosis. Um, it's, it's one of those things that you really do need to be very smart with which doctor you choose to get under the knife with. Um, I recommend to people to only pursue um, endo specialists, which will, uh, there's a link later, which has a whole list of people in the United States. I, I'm trying to think if that list has uh, doctors over on your side. <laughs> I will, I will, I will look into that, but um, there are endo specialists on your side of the world. Uh, mm -hmm. I am aware of that, but who they are and where that list might be, there might be a little bit different than in the U S but anyway, um, there there is research and um, active development. I haven't heard anything recently on, on you know, any new news per se, um, but there is a uh, doctor, Dr. Sechkin, I talk about him in a little bit, um, who is coming up with a uh, dye contrast, which if this does become a thing, which would be wonderful if it did, that would allow less experienced or less informed general OBGYNs to be able to perform laparoscopy surgery and see the hard to see lesions and give uh, women relief by being able to do that. So uh, hopefully that will happen soon. So there's two different forms of uh, surgery to remove endometriosis, uh, ablation and excision. I personally cannot recommend ablation. That doesn't mean that ablation is bad or wrong or doesn't work for other people, but I do kind of like this particular picture. And for those that are auditorily uh, listening and can't visually see this, essentially ablation is sort of burning off the surface of the endometriosis lesion. And excision is sort of like using a trowel or a shovel and removing the root cause of the implantation of that lesion and removing it that way. The problem is a lot of insurance companies see that ablation is cheaper and quicker. And so there are cases where insurance will argue um, you can have an ablation, but you can't have an excision because an excision takes longer. It takes more skill. Therefore, it takes more money. Mm -hmm. And in that aspect, uh, unfortunately, there is lack of education on that regard. When it comes to endometriosis, ablation is not your best option, in my opinion. Uh, and I am not alone in that opinion. There are a lot of doctors that realized after the fact that this is... Uh, it creates often more scar tissue and scar tissue creates inflammation and inflammation creates pain. And so some women will actually end up experiencing the same, if not more pain and lesions love endometriosis lesions, love scar tissue. They love bonding onto that. And so if you miss one little microscopic little endometriosis lesion, it's just going to go find the ablation mark and go grow there and thrive. So in my opinion, it's not something that um, is worth it. And there's been a couple of women who would, trying to do their best treatment option possible, did the ablation, regretted it, went to an excision and was like, I should have started with this. <laughs> I wish I had just started with this in the first place. And excision does tend to, not guaranteed, but does tend to offer longer uh, duration of pain relief. Because there are women who do receive pain relief with ablation. I won't say that you don't get pain relief because you can in some cases, but it's usually like uh, a year later, six months later, two years later, you're wanting to have another surgery again because you're already hurting versus excision has a more uh, consistent standing record of being able to uh, give pain relief longer because it's excising it, it's removing it entirely. Um, 
So for those that are listening auditorily, these are just basically a list of pros and cons, like we just talked about with the ablation versus excision. Um, there, some of the cons to ablation would be that there's uh, about 40 to 60% of a recurrence. Like we talked about almost every two to years, you have to go back and do a surgery. Uh, it does provide short-term relief for a lot of people. It's a shorter recovery. It's a shorter surgery. It doesn't require as much education because essentially you take a cartery, you go in there and you go buzz, buzz, buzz. You're not having to actually tactfully, meticulously pull apart <laughs> the woman's organs and preserve them and not damage them and then remove the lesions, which, you know, I mentioned earlier when I had my surgery, it lasted five hours and he didn't, he, he went right at about the point of my diaphragm and he went all through my hip cavity and all of that. So, I mean, it, it was a large area that he was addressing. However, I mean, that's a long time for him to be meticulously very, not only robotically, but um, laparoscopy wise, you know, he's using these tiny little tools to try to excise it. It, it just, it's a more t meticulous process for sure, but um, usually ends up with a lot more pros than cons. And this, uh, this, this opinion or this research or this uh, information is all available online. Uh, you, you don't just have to take my word for it. You can ask your doctor about it, or you can even go online and, and what's the differences between ablation and excision and find all of this info. Some statistics when it comes to those uh, women who are affected with endometriosis, about 85% of women with endometriosis report a uh, reduced quality of their own work. I can attest to that in that when my life was affected, it was hard. I had the brain fog. I had the migraines. I had the um, abdominal pain. And, you know, if it came down to a choice of whether I wanted to do laundry or dishes or nap, <laughs> I, of course, would want to just take a nap. I just wanted to curl up in a ball and go somewhere else. Like it was, it does have a uh, impact for sure on day-to-day -day life, on work life, uh, whether it be you work in an office or you work in a barn, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It affects, it affects us on a daily basis. 51% uh, of women who suffer with endometriosis reported that uh, it dramatically affected their jobs or their hobbies. Again, I can attest to that. Um, it just so happens that horses happen to be my job, but I know for a lot of people it affects them um, with their, as, as, as horses. So it can um, affect your day-to-day -day life. Uh, 11 hours worth of, or a quarter of their work week was lost to productivity uh, according to absenteeism. So they would call in sick or you would call your boss or you would call your riding instructor or you you could, uh, you have, if you're a teacher like me, you might have to call your students and say, Hey, I'm not feeling it today. I'm so sorry. We have to cancel lessons or training or whatever show. Um, endometriosis patients, 45% of endometriosis patients with children reported that it had an impact trying to raise a family. Uh, 50% of, uh, 16% of the women in the study of endometriosis patients reported, uh, that, lost educational time. So when it came to like either continuing ed or wanting to go to a show or wanting to go to a seminar or a conference or something like that, that it had affected uh, their choices of whether to travel or whether to um, and further their own education or if it stunted their career. And all of those statistics are available uh, with that link uh, that's listed on that page. And so one of the questions that we often uh, get asked is, is there a cure for endometriosis? And as much as I would like to say there is, unfortunately, there is not a cure. And uh, that's for now. I am optimistic that they will one day find a cure, a permanent one-all ending cure for endometriosis. 
I have heard rumors. I haven't heard any uh, provable doctor listing and bragging, if you will, that they have uh, almost gotten a cure for PCOS. And PCOS is the sister disease to endometriosis. They, they run in very similar symptoms and categories and behavior um, of, of growth and knowledge base of, of what doctors know about it. And they did, what I was told is they have cured PCOS in mice. Uh, they haven't gotten it approved for human use yet, but for mice they have, and they're actively, they have a lot of research study in, with endometriosis in mice and they are trying, uh, but unfortunately right now there is no cure. There's treatment options, but there's no cure. So does pelvic pain affect your writing? Absolutely, because we use our pelvis and we use our core uh, so much when we're writing that it really can affect uh, that area. So when we're using our seat and we're using our abdominal muscles, if there's adhesions, if there's lesions, if there's pain, a rider is going to choose to compensate or they're going to choose to um, find the least path of resistance, if you will. And um, sometimes that can end up hindering their riding ability or stunting their riding ability, making it uh, even to some degree, I ran into this for a few years where riding actually made my symptoms worse. Uh, I have since discovered a few tricks uh, that helped me and have helped others that being able to find a way of, of making riding actually more therapeutic for those that uh, suffer with pelvic pain. But when you're not sure what you're doing or you're not sure what's going on, pelvic pain can absolutely affect riding. So how, how does pelvic pain affect your riding? Pelvic pain um, is, if you're thinking about, we kind of a little bit discussed this, but if you're thinking about how um, the abdominal muscles tie into the pelvis muscles, tie into uh, the rider's ability to balance, because that, if you're, if I word this in the aspect of the riding instructor, we're told as riding instructors, you know, when you're trying to change a student's um, asymmetry or posture or something that they're doing, even with their limbs or exterior, we're supposed to fix the seat first. You know, you fix the seat first, and then sometimes that cascades down the rider's body. And if their hands are really high, but their pelvis is tilted forward, that might be, if you fix the pelvis, maybe their hands will come down too. Sometimes it is the hands, sometimes it is the leg, but often when we're trying to find uh, solutions for our riders, uh, fixing the seat or fixing the rider's pelvis is uh, the first place we're supposed to start. And if there's issues already there, then it can end up causing some problems. Uh, the improper use or dysfunction use of pelvic floor muscles can lead to pain during riding. Uh, I personally have experienced that. Uh, I went down a, a path of discovery to try to find the proper use of uh, pelvic floor muscles. And some people, especially those that do not have endometriosis or PCOS or other, let's just say any and all forms of pelvic issues, let's say you're one of the lucky ones and you don't have those issues, um, often they they already know how to use their pelvic floor muscles properly. Like it, it's just, you breathe, that's how you know how to do it. And uh, if, if you're one of those people, you're fortunate, <laughs> but there's some of us that don't have that ability because of a lesion or because of pain or because of the avoidance of pain, because we were in pain for so long and now we're not in pain, but we think we are. Horses do sort of the same thing when they experience lameness and then we solve that and then they think, oh, but it might still hurt. Our, our body has to go through a type of reset. We have to be able to learn um, how to reuse those pelvic muscles correctly. And when we use those pelvic floor muscles correctly um, and functionally, then it can often end up uh, becoming less of a painful experience, if not even maybe a positive experience. 
Adhesions and lesions uh, around the pelvis area can hinder movement, such as the hip or core area. We kind of talked a little bit about that already. Uh, I'm going to interject a little story really quick. I had a student uh, who I won't name because she's a minor, uh, but she was 16 years old at the time. And uh, she had not menstruated yet, which was weird. You know, most people start a little sooner than that, but she was 16 and she hadn't menstruated yet. And um, one, this kid was very consistent with lessons. I would go over there every week and give her her lessons on her horses. She had three or four really cute horses. And she was a very responsible 16 year old. She would get up every morning, go out to the barn, clean stalls, groom her horses, set the feet out. I mean, this was one very ambitious, very hardworking kid. And I got a call from her mom one day that said, hey, you know, blank kid started her menstrual uh, issue, er, period now. And uh, she's on the floor throwing up and can't get to the barn. And I'm like, that's not normal, but <laughs> okay. Um, well, let me know when she feels better. You know, at first I didn't want to be super involved in like, oh, it's endometriosis. You know, I'm, I'm her riding instructor, I'm not her doctor. Um, but I, you know, tucked it away in the back of my memory. of That's a little odd but okay, you know, let me know when she feels better. And if you need any help with the horses, just let me know. So we did that. And a month goes by and she's got, you know, she, after her menstrual cycle, her first, and it was horrible. Uh, she had a couple other lessons and then next time of the month rolled around and I got a phone call. Hey, kid's sick again. Uh, she's throwing up. She can't leave the bathroom and I'm tempted to take her to ER. Like it's that bad. And I'm like, this is two times now. Let's see if this happens a third time. I told the mom, I said, if this happens again next month, call me. And she's okay. So we scheduled the lessons and she had a couple more lessons and she was more her normal self in between the time. But then when that third month rolled around, she was very sick again. And I said, okay, look, this is three times in a row. I know it's already weird that she's 16 years old. She should have started by now, but um, she did start. Now it's really, really, really bad. I really think you need to see a uh, start with a pediatrician because she's a minor but you really need to go ahead and try to find an endo specialist. And the, the, the parents were kind of on board with it because they knew I wouldn't have given that advice offhandedly to just anybody. Um, and they knew my story with endometriosis. And um, so they're like, well, you know, if she knows what she's talking about. Let's just, let's just go ahead and try. Four doctors later, because the, the first three or four doctors wouldn't even see her. They're like, she's 16. There's no way. She's too young. She's too healthy. She's otherwise active. You know, this kid, string being of a, of a kid, you know, no, no weight gain, no, uh, you know, cysts evident on ultrasounds, you know, otherwise she's completely normal. And they're like, maybe she just didn't want to do the horses that day. You know, have you thought about putting her in counseling and finding out if there's something psychologically going wrong? And I'm like, this kid, no, she, she wants to do the horses. If, if she, she would need to be dying in order to not do the horses mm. like that, that no, don't take that for an answer. So finally they found a doctor who basically said, fine, I'll do the surgery to prove you wrong. Like I'm going to prove the parents wrong, that there's nothing wrong with their kid. And I will do the surgery pro bono for free just to prove you wrong. And they found stage two. She's 16. They found stage two. It would have been horrible if they had waited. But anyway, um, luckily the kid got answers and she got treatment and she's doing better, but she's an endo sufferer. And I'm really glad that I was able to influence that particular kid, but how many other kids are out there just like her? You know, sorry. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, excessive heat, uh, excessive bleeding or menstruation can affect a rider's comfort when under saddle. 
And the reason for that is like, if you're a dressage rider like me, sometimes we have to wear those lighter colored breeches. I mean, they're getting better now with letting us wear fun colors <laughs> when we go to the shows on our joppers or our breeches. But, um, you know, for tradition's sake, if you wear a white, uh, sometimes that can be really uncomfortable. So whether you yourself or you're observing a student that's like randomly calls you last minute, I don't want to do the show because I'm bleeding. And you're like, why does bleeding have anything to do with it? When you have endometriosis and you have heavy bleeding, you'll bleed through tampon after tampon or pad after pad. I mean, it, it's, it's like you're bleeding out. So, uh, keeping the psychological side of it in mind with other, either yourself or with students or with, um, someone who may know, uh, tuck it away in your memory bank. If you recognize that certain times in the month when they're bleeding, uh, that they're, they're a little uncomfortable with being in the saddle during that time. That's pretty normal. And I, I say, that's pretty normal it's not good. It's not, that's not, that shouldn't be, but that's normal for endo or that's normal for something being wrong. Um, dealing with brain fog, I can tell you that, uh, I, I feel for sure where I am now in my health way better. I I'm almost kind of surprised that I was able to get anything done back then, uh, when I was suffering and I didn't have answers and I was in the medical induced menopause and all of that other nonsense. Like it was brain fog's real. And uh, it is really something to struggle with something as simple as memorizing patterns and memorizing tests, or just being able to think quickly on the fly when you're on a horse, sometimes you have to do that. And uh, the, there, there's the delayed response or just uh, general moodiness that sometimes it is their responsibility to try to be the best versions of themselves when they're in the saddle, but sometimes they're combating other um, issues at that point. Uh, when trying to manage their symptoms, often riders are given uh, meds or, or uh, medic medication that have negative side effects that can influence their um, that influence them physically or mentally. That's a that's definitely a real issue. And for those that are watching auditorily or listening auditorily, not watching, there's an image here where it shows a woman who basically used um, like costume paint, and she's trying to visually show what it feels like to have endometriosis. Many have described it as like wrapping barbed wire around your waist or feeling like I'm cut or shot or, you know, burned. And um, in the aspect that endometriosis definitely is very internal, but unfortunately invisible uh, to the naked eye, it, you get told a lot with endometriosis, oh, you don't look sick, you know, you look fine. Uh, it's not something that we can show to uh, anyone around us uh, what it looks like, uh, but it is definitely there. So this girl was just trying to um, visually depict in the form of art, if you will, uh, what it could look like on the human body if it was visible. So this particular slide shows um, a model of a uh, woman's pelvis showing the coccygeus muscle, pubertalis muscle, uh, iliacrit, sorry, there's tongue tied here from an iliac coccygeus muscle, obturator indranus muscle, and the puberic talus muscles. And essentially with those muscles being the, those are the fundamental pelvic floor muscles. With that, um, those are where if those lesions start to get involved and start to super glue things together, make it very difficult for you to be able to use your pelvic floor. But some people appreciated this particular slide of like, where are these muscles? You talk about pelvic floor and pelvic pain. What does that look like? If you, there's the pelvic cavity kind of out on display. If you imagine all of that not being able to function properly, there's more muscles down there than people sometimes realize. Sometimes when people think about women's anatomy, they just sort of picture bones and like 
organs and they're just sort of all sitting in there and there's a lot of tissue and muscle and fascia and everything held holding it together and it's when these muscles are compromised that it can cause pain so do's and don'ts um, for before diagnosis this slide in particular is do uh, the the things you should do so for those that are looking at this uh, visually you'll see there's a qr code for the nancy's nook facebook group uh, I encourage you to uh, look up that group. Nancy was a, um, or is a um, certified nurse. And I'm trying to remember if she's an RN. I believe she's also an RN. But anyway, uh, she's a nurse. And she came across a lot of uh, endometriosis patients throughout her career. And she has dedicated, I would say her life, but it's been several many, 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 many years and many, 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 many hours of research into compiling a doctor list and a surgeon list of people who jump through rigorous hoops to be able to be put on this list. Not any doctor can just say, hey, I want to be on the Nancy's list. You have to do certain things. You have to have so many patients with positive reviews with endometriosis. You have to have uh, so many hours of experience doing laparoscopy surgeries and discovering and finding endometriosis and, and properly removing it. You have to be uh, proved that you do continuing education specifically in endometriosis. Like there's, there's just a lot, there's a lot of hoops. And she has all of those doctors who, who have approved those or not approved that have, who have jumped through those hoops on a list. And it sort of takes the, it doesn't take the research part out of it, but at least it can get you started on the right path of being able to try to find a doctor that might be able to help you best. I do encourage people to go ahead and do their own research. That doesn't mean I want everybody to be turning to Dr. Google, <laughs> but at the same time, the uh, doctors should be listened and taken into consideration, but you should also know that um, unfortunately doctors don't always have the advanced form of education like there are doctors out there who do. Uh, so technically in order to get, uh, this was my endometriosis specialist told me this. He said when he became an OB, um, endometriosis was mentioned one time in his entire like uh med school, if you will, becoming a doctor, uh, one time on one page. That was it. That's how much he knew about endo after he became an endo or after he became a OBGYN. And his particular story uh, is once he got married and he started to try to have her kids, his wife couldn't get pregnant. And he's kind of like, well, this is royally embarrassing. I'm an OB and I can't get my wife pregnant. What's the problem? So he did the whole drug route. He did the ultrasounds. He did the CAT scans. I mean, everything was at his disposal. And he was a good surgeon and uh, a buddy of his in, uh, it was somewhere in the UK, I can't remember where, uh, who had received his education in the UK, uh, flew over and said, hey, let me do surgery on your wife and you can, you can watch. <laughs> Sounds weird, but he, they did. And they did the surgery and they found out that she had stage three endo. And he's like, this is how you excise it. Like we're taught this, Let's, this is how you do it. And showed uh, my OB how to do that. And uh, he was fascinated by it and floored. And within seven months after that surgery, he, uh, his wife was pregnant with their first kid and uh, immediately solved a lot of their solutions and a lot of their problems. And he felt kind of like embarrassed, but then sort of uh, um, confirmed his suspicions that, that there was something going on. But even he didn't know what was going on with his own wife and he's the OB. <laughs> but anyway, so he does now have education in it and he has uh, dedicated the rest of his career as being listed as an endometriosis specialist. And that's pretty much all he sees now. He, he sees others, but he pretty much specializes in endo patients. So um, 
you do want to explain to your doctor if you have either have the condition or encourage those that you do to go to their doctor and explain uh, lack of quality of life. Um, and you there, the book, uh, the doctor will see you now by Dr. Tamara Sechkin uh, is an excellent read. Uh, even if you just start with that and then go from there, it's an excellent little like launch platform for those that may not be familiar with endometriosis or may not be, familiar with how it affects women on a day-to-day -day activity versus in horseback riding specifically. And um, I listened to the audiobook version of it and it's not long. I think it's like eight, maybe 10 hours. It's not long. Uh, and it, the audiobook version was, you know, well done and, and easy to understand. And so uh, that's a very, very excellent book reference. And Dr. Tamir Sechkin is the doctor who is trying to come up with that dye contrast to make it easier for people to be able to find endo and not have to be 30 to 40 years experienced, if you will, in the uh, surgery process so that more people can get um, relief, if you will. Uh, contact a physical therapist is one thing I like to recommend, especially one that will do pelvic floor therapy. It does help. It is a little bit painful, but it does help and uh, painful initially, I should say, but the long-term results are worth it. And then again, see if you can try to either find a, a physical therapist that will do the combo unit. If not, then you can technically go home and get or order online one of those TENS units. And a TENS unit and a heating pad can be helpful to manage the pain. Again, this isn't going to remove the lesions. It's not going to treat the problem, but it can help with symptoms. Uh, what you should not do prior to a diagnosis, and again, this is my opinion. You can technically do what you want, but this would be my opinion. Uh, I do not recommend that you just see a general OBGYN. Again, we talked about how it's a lot of doctors are actually not required to have a lot of knowledge about endometriosis right out of med school, or even if they've been practicing for a very long time. Uh, there are doctors out there that are not educated on it, and um, they, I don't recommend seeing a general surgeon. The general surgeon I saw for my very first surgery, he at least did know what it was, and he told me what it was, but again, he never told me a stage, and his solutions for treatment were still a little, uh, let's say, out of tune or less informed than what my current OB, who is an endospecialist, has since started the treatment process. Um, please don't ignore or dismiss your symptoms and listen if they, if they say, oh, you know, you're, you've been bleeding for two years. That's normal. I'm like, no, no, that's not. <laughs> if, if you, if you're a horse person and, and you really are a horse person and, and, uh, horses are your passion and that's what gets you out of bed and that's what you want to go do on a day-to-day -day life activity, then, um, if the morning you wake up and it's the day of your cycle and you're like, I, I cannot move. I cannot function. I don't want to ride. That's probably not normal. I mean, those of us that do horses for hobbies, you know, maybe it is normal, but those of us that really are passionate about it, if it's something that you really look forward to doing and your period or your menstruation gets in the way, it's probably not normal. Uh, please do not treat endometriosis without a proper diagnosis, because if you do not have endometriosis, the treatment options that are uh, available might not be best for you just as much as somebody who has endometriosis shouldn't be treated for like kidney stones. When they don't have kidney stones, they have endometriosis. They shouldn't be doing diuretics or anything like that. You know, they, they need to be aware of um, don't treat something you may or may not have until you get an official diagnosis. 
So getting back in the saddle after a laparoscopy surgery, um, I've had two laparoscopy surgeries so far. And uh, the first time I had my surgery, I, I, I did not do it right <laughs> because my OB, again, he wasn't as educated. So I'm, I'm not going to say that he was uh, like vindictive or evil to, to suggest this, but he said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I do horses. I train, I teach. He's like, okay, the average person can wait four days and then go back to work full time. That's after your average laparoscopy surgery, four days, take a break, and then just jump right back in. So I did. Do not recommend. One star. Not a good idea. <laughs> Please don't do that. After laparoscopy surgery, you really need to be able to take that time off. Um, you really need to be pay attention to weight restrictions. You need to uh, lifting weight restrictions. Uh, you need to uh, try to attempt to definitely walk. Uh, the walking helps because when they do the laparoscopy surgery, they inflate your abdomen with a gas so that it is easier for the tools to get in and start looking around. And just like if you've ever had a C-section or you've had any form of abdominal surgery, like an abendectomy or, or the like, a colonoscopy or, or not colonoscopy, uh, uh, the removing of uh, your gallbladder or et cetera, um, you, you might be familiar with what they call the gas pain, which is when after the surgery, that gas is trapped in your abdominal cavity. It has nowhere to go uh, until your body either absorbs it or you eliminate it. We'll just leave it at that. Um, the you you can end up with <laughs> you can end up with shoulder pain and you can end up with chest pain and it feels horrible walking does help so i do encourage people to walk and your doctor should be encouraging you to walk pretty quickly as soon as you can after surgery safely don't fall but um that that is a good thing but that doesn't mean you should get back on a horse right away um finding a pelvic floor doctor uh, or physical therapist right afterwards again i can recommend that uh the don'ts don't take four days or less uh even if the surgeon says oh the average person can go back to work in four days they might be referring to somebody who has a nothing against a desk job that's fine if you have a desk job that's great then you could probably go back to work but when we're talking about riding you're using those pelvic muscles you're using your abdominals uh, you usually have a higher heart rate it's like going to the gym or it should be in, in some degree to some degree and if you're like, oh, well, I'll just do a casual trail ride. Well, how many of us have been on a trail ride and it turned into a training session <laughs> or it turned into something else because, you know, the, the guy driving down the road was an idiot and my horse spooked. Well, you just don't know. So um, point is, you really do need to go ahead and take that time off until you're um, ready to get back in the saddle. The general recommendation is between six to eight weeks, but it does depend upon the severity of the surgery. How long were you on the table? How deep? were the uh how far did the doctor have to go uh there's been cases where people go in for laparoscopy surgeries and then they have to be flipped onto their back later so that they can get to the lung or the back of the of the patient because they found endo all the way up there and so you might end up with way more scar tissue and and, and adhesions than what you realized so you really need to listen to your doctor if he says take the time off and listen to your body even if the doctor says okay technically you can ride now um if you don't feel up to it don't it's not worth um the pain when i um when I took only the four days off, I had already paid for a horse show with a client's horse. And I was like, great, only four days. The show's like in a week and a half. I can do this. I went to get on on that day four and I threw up on the side of the horse and I'm shaking in so much pain. And my client looked at me and went, yeah, no, we're not doing the show. <laughs> and so then my, my bright idea was, okay, we won't do the show, but I'll just volunteer. So then I helped set up the dressage court uh, the day before the show. And I get two or three poles set up and my coach who has known me for a long time knew I had had surgery 
surgery was like, what are you doing here? And I said, I'm helping, I'm volunteering. She's like, you scratched your rides because you can't ride. So you come to volunteer. <laughs> She's like, no, 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 you're going to the office. And so I calculated scores the whole show because I wasn't able to do the runner position like I was supposed to. I wasn't able to go set up uh, any of the arena obstacles like I was supposed to uh, because I, I, I was way too weak. And so don't do that. It, re it really ended up kind of backfiring because you can actually create more scar tissue quicker if you uh, end up going to work sooner than you should. So don't do that. Take the time off. As hard as it is. I know it can be hard to not ride, but take the time off. Um, so what are some things that either we hear or um, if you, let's say you're, you are suspicious that somebody you know has endometriosis and you're trying to start that conversation. What are some things you can say and what are some things that um, are more hurtful <laughs> or not helpful? Uh, we hear a lot of you don't look sick or uh, periods are supposed to hurt. Just buck up. That's normal. Uh, just lose some weight. Then we'll talk. You know, that those are not not helpful things. Uh, here, just take some more pain meds. Just mask the problem. Put a Band-Aid over it. Not helpful. Uh, it's all in your head. You need to see a psychiatrist. Not helpful. Uh, it sounds like the problems you're having keep coming back or it sounds like when you're having problems, it's when you're at the barn. So maybe you should just, you know, stop coming to the barn. <laughs> That'll solve it. Don't, 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 no, no, don't say that. That's not helpful because for a lot of people, if they are in pain and they find comfort as I'm sure many of us as equestrians can relate to, uh, I've personally enjoyed going to the barn and just smelling the hay and smelling the horses that can be aromatherapy in a lot of ways. Uh, don't discourage people to not come to the barn just because they're feeling a little bit pain. Um, you, there's other things that you can say that are a little bit more helpful. Um, I usually will start off the conversation with, you know, does this seem to happen often? You know, you're feeling blue, you're not feeling good. How often does this happen? Um, have you noticed a trend? Have you noticed that it happens at around the same time in the month? Have you noticed that, um, is this something that only happens once a year or three or four times in a month? You know, let's get a baseline. What is normal? And uh, for you, anyway, does riding make your symptoms worse? Um, sometimes those with endometriosis, it will, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it can make it actually feel better. Again, if you, if you use the pelvic floor muscles correctly, um, riding can actually make your, uh, not only emotionally feel better, but even physically feel better. Uh, is there something that, you know, that helps that I can do for you? So, um, there's a couple of different, like, uh, tools that I have in my toolbox where, uh, one in particular, it's, it's a Franklin ball. It's, um, it's also sometimes referred to as a bean. It's like a little bubble, a uh, plastic ball bubble that I've put, let people sit on sometimes when they're riding and it helps lift the pelvic floor muscles up and the pelvis physically up so that their hips can move better. Um, and in a lot of cases that helps with, um, if you're having kind of a, a pelvic spasm, it can actually kind of give some relief for some riders or at least give them the education of how they can move their hips with the pelvic floor supported. So there's different tools for different instructors, but th th is there something I can do to help with your pain? It's a question that is safe and, and worth asking. Uh, is there, uh, when you observe the pelvic, sorry, um, have you noticed when you're riding a particular lead is difficult to get, or when I ask you to lift your right seat bone to move it to midline of the saddle or something like that, do you notice that, one seat bone is easier to move than the other? Or is there a hip that's easier to lift than the other? Is it, uh, are you always in an anterior or posterior tilt of the pelvis? Uh, those kinds of questions are things that you can ask your riders or your students and uh, just determine at that point if 
there might be some either asymmetry, which might not be endometriosis related, or it might be. I mean, if there's a lot of the boxes checked, it could be. It's at least worth finding out or asking. So possible treatment options for endometriosis, these do not always work for everyone. I will, you know, full, full, full disclosure there, this doesn't work for everybody, but this does work for some. Um, getting pregnant is not the most statistically provable thing, though there are people that say during pregnancy itself, your symptoms are better. I can even attest to that. Um, the, the amount of endometriosis symptoms that I was having pre-pregnancy versus in pregnancy itself, uh, I was completely non-symptomatic. And so I can definitely say I was actually able to enjoy pregnancy. Some people don't though. Some people it's worse. Some people it's hell for nine months for them. And I feel for them because in my case, I was like riding and teaching and training almost more when I was pregnant because I actually felt genuinely better. I was tired there towards the end and I felt like a whale there towards the end. But at the same time, the, um, that for some people it can help, but not everybody. A hysterectomy, this is only really successful if you manage to get 100% of the lesions and, and when you do the excision. And if there's any lesion left behind, uh, that lesion can continue to progress and grow on its own if it's left behind. And so no, it cannot take away uh, endometriosis entirely as a solution. Uh, one thing that's not necessarily commonly understood is that endometriosis lesions have and create their own estrogen. So even if you go through menopause and you have a hysterectomy, which is fine, you know, at that point, if it's that time of your life and, and that's what you opt to do it, for other reasons or for this reason, I'm not saying hysterectomy is a bad idea because it can be, especially if you're in that time of your life, but um, know that technically endometriosis lesions create their own estrogen. And so your hormone levels could actually be out of whack because of endometriosis, uh, very much so. Uh, changing your diet, again, limit, doing kind of either the anti-inflammatory diet or limiting the amount of things that your body knows and responds to as inflammatory responses can't help. But again, it's not gonna cure it. Um, I think it's important to take our, our health into consider or gut health into consideration when looking at endometriosis, but it's not gonna change. Your rate of growth of endometriosis is not gonna change where your endometriosis is located, it might help with symptom pain, but it's there's no guarantee. Massage or acupuncture, again, I've known some people that swear by this. I do. I will say that the massage side of it helped. The acupuncture for me did not, but that doesn't mean it won't for somebody else. Um, Medical-induced menopause, this was a solution for me that sort of helped trick the body to stop uh, menstruation and to stop ovulation sort of put a little bit of a pause on my um, hormone fluctuation, what normally would have happened with hormone highs and lows, uh, especially estrogen in particular, because um, I was basically given a progesterone only form of uh, birth control and took it continuously. And uh, there's other forms of medical induced menopause as well, but that was what was used for me. It, it did help with my symptoms. It did. Once I figured out which birth control worked best for me, uh, there was a bit of a learning curve with that. The whole six months bleeding, I was on a particular birth control, taking it continuously, no different than what I did later. Uh, but that birth control was not for me. It had too high of estrogen was the problem. And so it sent me into basically stuck cycle. And it wasn't until I um, changed birth controls that then made me stick in a form of um, that in 
between of not not, not cycling but not, not menstruating and and not technically ovulate, ovulation either and that's what worked for me but i'm not going to say that that's going to work for everybody for some people it's hell and they don't want to do that and that's i completely respect that but for some people they may not know that that's an option for them and, and it might work for you uh, Lupron is sometimes suggested specifically as a drug by doctors. Personally, I can never recommend it. And, and that, again, that's personal. If your doctor and you trust your doctor and you want to go down that road, that's fine. That's between you and your doctor at that point, And that's your decision. But I think it's worth noting that uh, it's a specifically dangerous drug with a very colorful history, both for males and females, but especially females. Uh, and at one point there there's, you can find this on any, you can find it on the internet. You can ask certain people that were involved in the lawsuit. Uh, this is, I would say, in a lot of ways, public knowledge that Lupron uh, was listed as a, chem or a uh, criminal enterprise and was uh, sued, essentially, uh, $874 million, which is the largest payout of fines that a pharmacy company has ever had to pay for any drug. And so uh, as a criminal, a criminal enterprise, I, I just in, in good conscience can't say, yeah, go ahead, put that in my body. <laughs> Let's see what it does. It wasn't even ever intended to be anywhere near women. Uh, it was originally designed as a cancer fighting drug for prostate cancer, um, which if it's used in that fashion and it works for the male audience for prostate cancer, fine, that's great. I'm not saying the drug should just, you know, go jump off a cliff and never exist again, but if it works for something else, fine, but I don't believe it is a solution for endometriosis. I don't believe it is something that should be anywhere near women. I have heard of women on the internet specifically saying Lupron changed their life, that they're better, that they're not symptomatic and that's all wonderful, but I won't put it anywhere near me and I won't recommend any of my friends to do it just because of the history that it has. And um, there have been documented cases of it uh, sterilizing both men and women. So it's not something that I would encourage. And they do use it as a sterile agent in uh, the prison system. So I, I, I just personally couldn't recommend it. So fat or myth, fact or myth, uh, it, does a hysterectomy cure endometriosis? Nope, it does not. That is a myth. Uh, some other myths that can come up or uh, that we're told or perceived as truths are as follows. Uh, diet will cure endometriosis. We covered that. It does not. Endometriosis is um, something that cannot be cured by a diet. So that is false. Endometriosis is rare. Well, like we talked about in the very beginning, uh, endometriosis is affecting at least one in 10 women. And those are the ones that actually managed to get a diagnosis. So in my opinion, no, one in 10 women, I would not categorize as rare. Uh, one in like three or four million, then yeah, I would maybe say that that's rare, but one in 10, that's not rare. Uh, endometriosis can be prevented. No, is the short answer. Uh, the, the longer answer is that we don't necessarily know how women end up with endometriosis. We don't know if it's genetic. We don't know if it is a uh, perfect storm of, of genetics and alignment or a lot of people are trying to push for the education and research to see if it's not in more of the category of an autoimmune disease. If you look at it as an autoimmune disease, it starts to make a lot more sense. And just as much information as we have about autoimmune disease and how much information we have about um, endometriosis. I'm not saying endometriosis is an autoimmune, though if it ever did finally get that category, I would actually be cool with it. I mean, that, that, that would make a lot more sense to me, but they didn't ask me and I'm not a doctor. So at that point, I can't definitively say that it is. Um, endometriosis is caused by an STD. First time I heard this, I was actually just 
insulted. <laughs> I don't really know what other way you could look at it. Um, no, it's the short answer. Uh, endometriosis is nothing like an STD, uh, not even in the same category. It's, it doesn't, no, it, the answer is no. We won't get into that, but it's not. Uh, this one is actually a personal story. Uh, I had an OB, a female OBGYN tell me, oh, the reason why you have endometriosis is because you had a belly button piercing. And not that you want to know this about me. I've actually never had my belly button pierced. Nothing against it. It's perfectly fine in form of embellishment if that's what you choose to do. But endometriosis is not caused by belly button piercing. That's not even how it works at all. And uh, when that OB doctor told me, oh, if you had just not gotten your belly button pierced when you were a kid, and I lifted my shirt and showed her, I've never had my belly button pierced. That That's, you're wrong there. I'm sorry. I grabbed my purse and I walked out. And I did not pay for the appointment because I'm like, you know what, if you're going to, if that's your education, we're done. I'm I'm not going to, I'm not even going to go down this road. And I'm sure that probably, you know, cooked, cooked her turkey, but, um, I, sorry, if that, that, if that's what you were told in med school, you were misinformed. So I, I don't, I don't even entertain that kind of, um, misinformation. And I knew at that point I wasn't going to be treated fairly. So no, endometriosis is not due to any form of piercing or belly button piercing specifically. Pelvic floor therapy, does it help? Yes, it does. Um, pelvic floor therapy, it works because we can help with managing pain and uh, creating a greater degree of mobility. Um, and this, when you have something that is immobile and you can make something more mobile, it can often end up helping with pain symptoms. Um, the... A pelvic floor physical therapist addresses the muscles and ligaments that are connected to even just your lymphatic system, the joints and sides surrounding your pelvis girdle. Often uh, the intimate regions are where most people associate where the uh, muscle grouping of the pelvic floor is. Uh, the Essentially, they're trying to, a, a pelvic floor therapist is going to help you with whether it is a hypermobility or hypo mobility, whichever the case may be, sometimes muscles are spastic and therefore at that point they need to be calmed down and, and not be firing as much as they should are or, or um, should be. And then there's muscles that have kind of atrophied because they aren't firing and they're supposed to be, and they're the supportive muscles and they're the ones designed to take the brunt of the uh, use and they're not uh, due to uh, lack of firing. And therefore a pelvic floor therapist is going to help um, their patient with being able to sort out um, which muscle groups are spasming and which muscle groups need to be working a little bit harder to support the pelvic girdle. So the pelvic floor and the diaphragm have a lot of things in common. And uh, this is sort of the area that it's, it's, it was kind of hard. See my cat. <laughs> it's kind of hard. She wants to be in on this. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe uh, on a photo or on a slide how to do this. This was the best picture I could find on the internet to try to describe it. But uh, the, the best form was doing pelvic floor physical therapy like in the office where they are physically enacting pelvic floor therapy, um, which I don't know if anyone who will be listening will have had that done or if you, uh, Anne, have ever had that done. But uh, it's, it's a very private affair. You know, it's not something that's done out in the open. Uh, but when they're doing the pelvic floor therapy, doing these exercises at the same time um, with a therapist is the the best outcome, but then being able to sort of replicate it without the actual pelvic floor therapist or therapy happening, session happening, and doing this exercise while in the saddle is something that you can do. 
essentially when you are inhaling your diaphragm on your thoracic cavity is going to descend and the pelvic floor cavity should also descend. And often with those with pelvic floor dis dysfunction, it actually ends up kind of doing the opposite. So uh, the pelvic floor would try to come up and kind of grab or seize or spasm when they, when you're trying to inhale. And this creates a, a um, improper use, if you will, of how muscle groups are supposed to work. And then uh, when you exhale, your diaphragm, your thoracic cavity collapses, and then your thoracic cavity comes up and your diaphragm comes up and the pelvic floor is supposed to be able to come up. And it was sort of described to me as if you think of the cervix area, the an bringing an elevator from the bottom floor to the top floor while breathing and using breathing to help push the pelvic floor down and using breathing to help pull the pelvic floor up. When you get good at that, um, and you can tie in Kegels with it too. Some people are familiar with Kegels, but um, when, you're, when you're doing this, uh, for instance, sitting trot was one of the things that used to trigger my symptoms. I, I used to have a lot of pain doing sitting trot specifically. And, uh, you know, canter wasn't that bad and um, walk wasn't that bad, especially if it was a relaxing trail ride, walk, hack out, whatever. It, but when it started going to work and we started doing some sitting trot work, I would, my whole abdominal cavity would just start seizing and start hurting. And I was frustrated that my riding was now starting to be affected by this endometriosis diagnosis. And um, what I found was doing these simple but pretty effective breathing exercises and tying it in with the awareness of what my pelvic floor was doing did help calm some of those spastic muscles down and giving them a more effective job during specifically sitting trot. That's my story. And unfortunately, uh, it's something that you sort of have to discover on your own, but know that there are resource materials out there. There's therapists out there that might be able to help you on your own path of discovery of trying to figure out what, how, and um, uh, what way your pelvic floor might need help best. Things to take into consideration. Um, you've probably heard me say this like a broken record and on repeat, just because it worked for me or just because it worked for uh, someone else who I know does not mean it would work for you. Every individual, uh, what is available for them, whether it's, let's say an excision surgery removal uh, or a physical, therapy or whatever that might work for you. It might not work for you. I, my hope is that at least sharing the information that there are these resources available and that you should consider giving them a try uh, is what I guess my point and all of that is. Uh, the There are issues that, uh, or there are situations where these treatment options don't work for everyone. But it was my hope that Maybe if it worked for me, it might work for somebody else. Or if you're an endo sufferer and you know someone who also is, just because you, what worked for you might not work for them. But it's worth sharing the information all the same, I think. So I've been asked this question a lot. How do I know my doctor's a good doctor? How do I know my doctor's giving me good advice? Um, I use this like four-point bullet point checklist for uh, when I started I don't want to say shopping around for a doctor because that just sounds weird, but like looking around for a doctor, trying to find a doctor that would help me best. Um, you do want to make sure that the doctor has a higher form of education regarding endometriosis. Not all endo or not all OBGYNs are familiar with endo. We kind of already have discussed that. Um, technically using the term endometriosis specialist is not entirely 100% accurate in that there's not some sort of licensing or certificate or special training that a doctor can then say they're an endometriosis specialist. 
it's supposed to be, if they're an OB, they're supposed to know about it. Unfortunately, it's statistically, as well as from my my experience, I can tell you, and I'm not alone. There's a lot of other people that share this opinion uh, that that's unfortunately not common. You can't find your general OB and and then be educated on endometriosis. So uh, when you go around asking, let's say you go to a doctor's office and it's a new doctor's office and you're like, are you an endometriosis specialist? They might look at you a little funny. Um, Again, that's where I would reference the Nancy's Nook list. And the Nancy's Nook list uh, talks about how, um, what you should find in doctors and what, and what education as resources is available for them out there. And that they, um, some doctors might not, and they might say, yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with endo. These are my endo patients. Here's my endo resume, essentially. And if you find that, like snag it, like that's awesome. (laughs) A lot of doctors though, will kind of maybe look at you a little sideways or scheduling offices might go, there is no such thing. I would argue that I think there is, but there's not some sort of special certificate or added on form of education licensing to say an endo specialist. It is something that a doctor can technically proclaim, self-proclaim, um, but to f- doing your own research and trying to find a doctor that is educated is what I would encourage you to do. Um, you can compare what your doctor is telling you to other leading experts that are um, very familiar with endometriosis. You could essentially take the book, like we talked about earlier, that was The Doctor Will See You Now by Dr. Tim Irsechkin. You could take his book in with you <laughs> practically to your appointment and say, hey, you know, um, th- this is what I know is the gold standard, if you will, for endometriosis. What's your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, what's your theory? And kind of glean at that point their knowledge and find out if they're how familiar they are with it themselves. Um, does that doctor listen when you have questions and concerns? I have been in the doctor's office where I feel like it was more of them talking to me about my issues and uh, what they thought were my concerns. And they hadn't even asked me what what I've already been diagnosed with. And it felt kind of weird, it, like they were making assumptions in a lot of sense. Um, and then there were, there's been other cases where I felt like I had to tell my whole story and they would look at me and go, yeah, we'll just ignore all that. And we're going to start anew. And I'm like, no, you can't do that. I've already had all these surgeries. I've already had these diagnoses. You have to understand that I, I, I am aware that this is an issue and we need to treat it and, and keep it in mind. Um, so just check in with your doctor to see, um, are they the listening type? Will they hear you out? Are they going to be the type of person to say, you're not a doctor. I am, therefore I am all knowing. And if they say something of that nature, then they, they might not be a good fit. Uh, you can read reviews with a lot of doctors, or you can reach out to other endometriosis warriors and find out if they're, uh, you know, Facebook is a good resource, but there's other pages that you can utilize and find out if there are doctors out there that, um, have review pages and you can review how endometriosis patients were previously treated. And if they felt that their symptoms uh, or their them describing their symptoms was heard. It led to surgery. Surgery went well. I feel relief after surgery, et cetera. Uh, those kinds of reviews, those would be uh, in, in good nature towards the doctor. I have sometimes been asked, um, can horses get endometriosis? Uh, especially when I give this presentation towards the horse community or the horse crowd. And essentially they can, but they there's a different name for it. Uh, it's called endometritis. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I am not a vet. I should also clarify that. I'm not a vet. And so uh, I did run this information though by my vet and my vet uh, basically said, this is a, a very short summary of what can be the case for endometri- endo, 
metritis. Um, and it's an invisible disease like endometriosis for humans, and it can affect up to 15% of broodmares worldwide. Um, it is an inflammation response similar to endometriosis. This is the closest comparison. So it definitively horses can't get endometriosis specifically, but they can get this version of it. And it's a very, very, very similar thing. Um, like for us, it can make the reproductive area in, inhospitable um, for sperm or an egg or an embryo to implant, which often leads to infertility for mares. And usually that's how it gets diagnosed because horses, of course, can't talk and tell us, hey, my pelvis hurts. Instead, usually how it's found is when you're going to try for breeding and your mare is not taking and it's she's acting or behaving infertile or the results are coming back infertile it could be something of this nature uh this condition can be acute or it can be chronic it just depends upon the mare uh it can be caused by either bacteria uh during uh the process of the whether it be artificial insemination or live cover it can even have a lot to do with um, the simple anatomy of the horse's pelvis, uh, if it's incorrectly, or um, I don't want to say it's misshapen, but if, if it's an incorrect anatomy, uh, it can lead to prop improper discharge of fluids, which then can create bacteria and then creates inflammation, and then this can happen. So horses kind of can get endometriosis. It's slightly different, but I got asked that question a couple of times, so I decided to add that slide. March is Endometriosis Awareness Month, which we're a couple months out from that. Um, the I believe, and, and so does Tammy Seshkin, that uh, awareness is everything. I think being able to spread the awareness and being able to spread information is what's important and um, effective for those of us that I went several years, even as you know, a woman. I was I was twenty one was the first time I heard endometriosis, and even people like my mom, for instance, felt bad initially when I got my diagnosis, she's like, man, I wish I'd known, but she didn't know, you know, she went her whole life, not knowing that there was issues such as endometriosis. She watched me sort of suffer in pain and she was willing to take me to whatever doctor I needed to go to. And, and she was there right by my side during both of my surgeries. She was very supportive, but you know, she didn't know. And her mother didn't know. And a lot of the women I was hanging around with at the time didn't know. So awareness is everything. Awareness is, will really help uh, with getting ahead of this um, particular issue and being able to help people understand how it can affect us. Um, the, I think it's important to have to a degree an early intervention, sort, sort of a paraphrasing here what Dr. Sechkin was talking about. Timely intervention is important because like what was mentioned in the, the list of symptoms where if left untreated, it can lead to cancer. The sooner we can get people um, to know about endometriosis and the sooner that we can get women into the whether the operation room or if later they can come up with a way of being able to remove endometriosis in the future without having to do surgery. Of course, I'd be behind that, but right now surgery seems to be the best gold standard uh, of removing endometriosis. If we can get um, earlier intervention, then we can end up with less problems on the tail end of uh, a woman's situation later in life. If you leave it untreated, leave it longer diagnosed, it can end up a lo longer period of time between diagnosis and uh, answers, then it can end up problematic for the woman. Let's see. And so here's a couple of different support group links for those that are listening auditorily. I have two QR codes and a uh, clickable link. Uh, essentially, you can find me on Facebook with this Equestrians with Endometriosis Facebook page. You should be able to just search that 
and find it. Uh, that's the loco. It's essentially a horse with um, a yellow ribbon. Yellow ribbon is what Endometriosis uh, Awareness ribbon color is. It's a yellow ribbon. And so uh, you should see a logo with a horse's head and a questions with endometriosis. If you want to search that on Facebook, there's a QR code for those that are able to visually see this. I also have an Instagram and a TikTok. I'm not as active on them as I probably should be, but uh, if I get the link to this, I'll probably add it to those two sites so that people can find me that way. But um, there are other support groups that are not specifically related to equestrians. I have tried to find more endometriosis equestrian support groups and I haven't found many. I think I found one gal that was an online influencer who did horses as a side hobby thing and mentioned it once or twice. And she's an endo advocate, if you will, an endo warrior. And um, that's the only one I could find. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't others out there, but um, I've kind of I've tried to kind of frontline this particular page in particular and um, allow people who have endometriosis to join the page who uh, are, or know someone who does. And um, they, when they join the page, you know, sometimes I'll try to post articles that talk about endometriosis or um, in the past when I've done this particular presentation, I've listed links for it before and trying to help uh, spread awareness or education for the equestrian community, because it can affect when we're riding. Uh, and it's, usually more looked at as being an ailment that affects us as women on a day-to-day -day activity, but um, it can affect us in riding. And therefore, I think having an equestrian group uh, has been helpful uh, because myself as an equestrian, once endometriosis started affecting my horses is when I kind of woke up, if you will, and realized this is, this is something that I need to investigate. This is something I need to fix. Like, it's one thing if I feel terrible all the time, but I, I, you, something does not get in the way of my horses. <laughs> That's something I'm pretty passionate about. And, um, and I know that there's others out there who feel the same. And I know there's, there's others out there that, um, might feel a little alone because I did, uh, there for a while when I got my diagnosis and I didn't know what was going on. I wasn't sure who uh, to talk to. I, I had lots of questions and um, I do not claim to have all of the answers now. I, I don't. Um, I, I know of people who do have a lot more answers than I do. And that, that's what I try to respond with. If I don't know something, it's either I don't know, I will ask so-and-so, or I don't know, I will find out one or the other. I try to answer with either of those two things. But um, there are people out there who are educated, who are front-running front support groups not just mine. You don't have to, you don't have to find just mine, but, um, there, I would be curious if you, you found one that was a, another equestrian endometriosis support group, I'd, I'd love to be able to connect with that and, um, meet other people who are in the equestrian field. So this is my last and final slide. Um, you know, there is a QR code for those that are being able to look at this visually and see, uh, that QR code there on the bottom right is essentially, you could say the notes, if you will, for this particular, uh, presentation, it has similar pictures and it has, um, a lot of the things that I said written down but with less, no, no rabbit trails <laughs> and not as many stories, but, um, it has the bulk of the information already written down as a blog post on my website. And so you can, um, click on that QR code for those that are listening, my website is www.mc-equestrian.com. And if you go to blog, you will find the one in 10 women um, article or blog post there. If you're interested in notes or contacting me, there's also a contact 
tab on my website there. And my email, if anyone wanted uh, specific links or to chat with me that, that way, my email is Marilyn, M-A-R-I-L-Y-N dot M-C equestrian at gmail.com. And uh, I will do my best to try to answer your questions when it comes to emails. Again, I'm not necessarily, uh, I don't know everything <laughs> at all. I just wanted to be able to share and have this opportunity to share what information I have learned, both uh, the hard way and uh, the educated way, and uh, to be able to help support those of us that have endometriosis, that you're not alone. And uh, there are things that you can do that do help manage the symptoms. And uh, one day, if we ever do get a cure, I'll be one of the first ones to try to jump on it and blast it from the rooftops. But at this point, um, all we can do is manage the symptoms and put one foot in front of the other and uh, continue to enjoy our horses, hopefully in a pain-free way, and uh, be able to provide solutions and um, empathy for or our students who might be suffering with this uh, to be able to help them realize that they don't need to give up the writing because they have this condition, that there, there's things that can be done or at least attempted to uh, helping them manage their pain. Anyway, that's all I have. Oh, that was fantastic. Wow. Uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. I think I have Aww. a... <laughs> I think I have a last question for you because um, I have never heard of this, um, uh -huh. but I, I, I'm just thinking um, if if you're not diagnosed, will it mm -hmm. always be uh, worse uh, when years go by or you can live with it a whole life or, or how is that Um no, that's a good question. Um, it does depend upon the person. So some people progress really slowly and they can go their whole life and it would barely leave their pelvic cavity and they would stay sort of in a stage one, stage two of their entire life. Okay. Uh, for other people, it can progress to stage four, kind of like the story of my student that was 16. She was stage two yeah. and she'd only been bleeding a year and a half by the time she got on the table for a surgery. So there's some, you know, back in the middle ages <laughs> um, and women would just die and they didn't know why. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and and there's actually, I don't know if, if people are of the religious nature or not, but there's even a, a woman in the Bible, a story in the Bible, where there was a woman who had been profusely bleeding. I am of the belief, and uh, she touched Jesus's robes and was healed. I'm of the belief that she suffered from endo, because endo was a thing back then. I mean, it's been, it's been a thing since the dawn of time. And mm -hmm. um, as, a, as a reproductive uh, issue, but it's also a whole body issue issue if it gets to that point but to answer your question specifically you can you can go your whole life and it just be maybe on the mildest sense of it maybe you have really painful really painful periods uh, or cramps or ovulation uh, there was a time period for me that it wasn't so much the periods that hurt as ovulation I was like doubled over it was weird mm -hmm. um but you can go like on the more mild sense Maybe it's just irregular, like you never really know when your cycle's going to come. Sometimes it's early, sometimes it's late, and it just stresses you out. Sometimes uh, you might just have a little bit of pain. Maybe you have a lot of pain, but then there's not a lot of lesions. Again, the pain is not in reference to the stage. But um, if you have endometriosis begin to develop in your system, and let's say it's when you start bleeding at around, I don't know, 12, 13, somewhere in there. 
uh, and now you're in your 60s or 70s and wondering if all this time you've had endometriosis. That doesn't mean you're going to have cancer, you know, by the time they ever did a surgery. Uh, 90% of cases, it does, though. So, I mean, if, if you don't, then you fall in the 10% that didn't. Uh, but the, the case of could you go your whole life and not know? Yes, you absolutely could. Could you go your whole life and just stay in one and two stage? Yes, you absolutely could. Um, there, the, the issue of talking about endometriosis has always kind of been considered a bit of a taboo subject. In fact, I think if you even look up the, the um, word origin of the word taboo, it was in reference of people talking about women's menstruation. That's, mm. And they said that's taboo. Uh, I'm pretty sure you don't, you may, I say, don't quote me on it. You're, you're recording this. So you're quoting me on it, but <laughs> I'm pretty <laughs> sure that is the origin of the word taboo. And, um, you know, my grandmother as an example would not have had this conversation with my mom, her daughter. No. It no. was back then, not something that was to be talked about. And I'm not mm. saying that that was wrong for her because she was only doing the best that she knew. That's right. um, but she ended up, she ended up with, um, what they refer to as cancer of the thymus, which is really, really rare for someone in the, let's just say elderly years, because I don't want to name it and then offend somebody like, oh, well, you called me an elder. <laughs> say she was older. And <laughs> we won't say how old. Uh, she was older and she had uh, a very enlarged, it was the size of a football, uh, thymus. And the thymus gland is something that, you know, when you're little, a baby, it's pretty big. And then as you get older, it shrinks and it excretes, uh, a, uh, a, I'm losing the word. Um, when you, when you're sick antibodies, that's what it was. Uh, it, it gives your body the antibodies to fight off certain illnesses. So it starts off big and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller. So why in the case of my grandmother would it have ended up so big? And when they, you know, um, excised a portion of it and put it under the screen, they admitted the microscope, they didn't know what it was. So they were like, it's inflammation. It looks like cancer. It's acting like cancer. We're just going to say it's cancer of the thymus. My grandmother always had very painful menstruation. She always had very, very irregular periods. She always had chronic pain. Um, my mother is now a little suspicious if my grandmother didn't have endometriosis and it had actually gotten that high up to her thymus gland and it encapsulated it, penetrated it, compromised it. And back then when they had done the surgery, she was, I mean, it would have been maybe in the 90s or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, the, you know, surgery knowledge based then, I'm not saying it was his stone age, but it wasn't what it is now. I don't know if they would have recognized it. And and we won't ever know. And, and it may have been cancer of the thymus and she was put on cancer medication for years and uh, she was a double cancer survivor. And um, that might be something that we won't know on this, the, you know, in this lifetime. But uh, at the same time, I think it's curious and she didn't, you know, she never got a diagnosis and she went about her life and she lived a very long, otherwise healthy life of a double cancer survivor. She lived a whole lot longer than doctors said she would, uh, like 16 years longer than what doctors said she was going to. Okay. And, and um, so in that regard, you know, could you go your whole life with endo and not know it? Absolutely. Uh, would it progress to the point of to your thymus? It depends. It's really a genetic thing at that point. Uh, hard to know. Um every person's different. Uh, I do think that if you do the research and Dr. Sechkin talks about this some in his book that back in um, not just the middle ages, but even a little after that, they used to diagnose women with a, uh, it was essentially another word of saying crazy. 
like uh, mad or or mm. uh, insane, loco, you know, just yeah. not right yeah, in the yeah. head. Mm. And women used to get that diagnosis a lot. And um, he's done proven uh, research history and looked into historian research and uh, was able to sort of connect the dots to raise the question. We won't really know because it's a thing of then, you know, mm. that we can't change the past uh, if it wasn't a lack of education that they were actually suffering from endometriosis because a lot of the symptoms that were listed on those doctor's notes back then, um, which again, doctor's notes back then were subpar probably at best, but uh, when they were listing symptoms of women and then they would get the diagnosis of you were just crazy, um, they, and that, that, that's, I'm paraphrasing here, but they, at that point, Dr. Sushkin is kind of curious at that point if they, if they weren't suffering from endo at that, at that point. But, um, so unfortunately, you can go your whole life and uh, you can, it's worse for others than it is for some. That I, I don't want to dismiss, though, somebody's feeling of um, what they are experiencing they don't believe is normal. And just because it wasn't as bad as my experience, therefore makes it less important that I don't believe in that. I think uh, if, if you know in your gut that maybe pun intended, uh, that if something's off and you're not sure, uh, in a sense, I would argue that it's not necessarily too late to experiment with finding higher education doctors and um, investigating to that end. Mm -hmm. Uh for me, getting the diagnosis initially, especially from not technically the very first diagnosis from somebody who was very educated, there was a huge part of me that felt a degree of relief, yeah. a degree of mental relief. Yeah. yeah. Diagnosis is very validating, even though, you know, when I give this presentation, sometimes it feels a little like disheartening because I can't give you a positive, um, here's the cure, just do this. I wish I could. Uh, but I feel like when people can get the diagnosis and they're told they're not alone, they're not crazy. These are the things that could be happening, mm. can be very validating, can be very comforting. Yeah. Um, and it made me look at, at my health very different. When you're told on repeat, if you just get pregnant, it would go away. When you're told, oh, maybe it's just in your head, you should seek counseling. When you're told, just take this pill, it'll go away there's an element where you start to spiral. You start to realize that, um, you know, there's gotta be a better solution, but then when you, everywhere you turn, you're being told something different, something crazier, something even, mm -hmm. you know, not an option for you. Uh, I think it's important to know that there are people who are looking at it from the medical point of view, looking at it from the scientific point of view, and they're not taking the answer of it's in their head for an answer. They, they're trying to find Mm -hmm. uh, are there people out there that have mental conditions? Yes. Are there people yeah. out there that need that kind of help? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But so often um, that is thrown around quicker as a diagnosis mm -hmm. than going ahead and doing their own research and finding out that it may be an endometriosis solution. And again, the medical induced menopause, it was rough to start with, but it worked pretty well for me for managing my symptoms. I will attest that between the medical induced menopause, once I figured out what meds worked for me. Cause initially the first three or four that I was on did not work. I felt like I was going crazy. Um, the, cause hormones are a very powerful thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, they can change and alter your brain's chemistry pretty quickly. Um, once I figured out what worked for me, I will give full credit to the, yes, I know my doctor was serious and, and genuine. I, I believe 
hundred percent, he was genuine when he said, I was not probably going to be able to have kids this particular subject. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did the right steps in the right order by doing the medical induced menopause to sort of put a pause on, um, hormone fluctuation to, in my case, at least make my symptoms less bad, whether it actually slowed my endo growth down or not. I don't know. I couldn't answer that for you. Mm -hmm. I'm not a doctor and I haven't had enough surgeries per se to be able to definitively prove that. And just because it would for me would not be a guarantee that it would for somebody else. In some sense, I think it did. I do think it did. Um, but with me doing that, then doing the surgery, um, and my second surgery was in 2019 and then attempting for going back into medical induced menopause. So I continued to not bleed, uh, and had not menstruated then getting off my birth control and immediately trying for children. Um, I was able to conceive my daughter within less than two months, which is insanely fast for a mm -hmm. lot of people who struggle with uh, infertility or getting off of medical induced mm -hmm. menopause and then attempting to try to have children. And, um, there's, there's a small chance, a small chance that my endo won't be as severe as it could have been had I not had children because my body has done that type of cellular reset, but that there it's not, I don't want to say it's not provable. Even if I was the one circumstance or one case that it did, I can't argue that it would be the same way if somebody did the exact same thing in their body unfortunately, where we have differences as humans, um, mm -hmm. how my body chose to accept certain medication and um, the order of events and how it happened. I did it very educated and very uh, deliberately in that order. Mm -hmm. Not everybody has that luxury. Um, and, and, and those that maybe do things out of order, that doesn't mean they, they're already you know, set up for failure or they're on the wrong track. You can easily get back on the right track. But, um, and maybe to not lose hope in that regard, but I'm very glad that I was able to find the information that I was able to do my own research. It took hours and hours and lots of doctor's appointments and lots of support to be able to come up with this, um, probable solution and, or at least to my problem of whether or not I could have kids and, um, the, in the aspect of looking back, I've recognized that if I had been born maybe in a different generation, that maybe this would be my daughter's story, but not mine. You know, it, it takes, it takes um, a degree of determination. It takes a degree of tenacity. It takes a degree of um, self-advocation to get to where I am. And I want to try to provide stepping stones, if nothing else, for others, or at least confirming that um, you're not alone in this. There are options. Don't give up hope. That's great. That's great. And thank you very, very much for this. It was, it was very exciting, I think. So I hope also a lot of you out there have been listening to this and, and uh, thinking about if you, if you or any, anybody else, you know, have these problems. So uh, then you can get help. So thank you very much. It was a pleasure to meet you and uh, you very, well. very interesting. Thank you for having me. This is a good opportunity. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you to all of you out there who have been listening or seen this. And please subscribe so you can see the next yes. week as well. And thank you very much for you to you, Marilyn. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for hosting. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.